Hey everyone, this is Pastor Jonathan. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in and listening to our sermon from Connection Church in Lead. And I wanted to encourage you, while listening to a sermon online can be very helpful and edifying, and we do appreciate you listening, if you're not connected into a local body of believers, I would encourage you to do so. We, we are commanded not to neglect the gathering together. So find a gospel-centered, Bible-preaching church where you can submit to the elders and fellowship there. If you don't have a church home and you are in the Leeds, South Dakota area, feel free to join us. We would love to come have you join us and worship with us. With that said, thank you and enjoy the sermon. I am very grateful that you are here this morning. Very grateful for Bruce, who offered to lead worship this morning, and man, especially to sing some of those songs that I had never sung before. I uh, greatly enjoy learning new music. I think the, uh, the command in the Psalms to sing a new song to the Lord doesn't mean we always have to pen a new song. Sometimes it's singing a song we don't know. But I greatly enjoy that, and I'm really excited to be, it's probably obvious, I'm really excited to be in the season of Advent, to be in the season of the studying of the coming of our Lord, where we celebrate the first coming of Christ, and we look ahead to the second coming of Christ. It's a time of celebration, of reflection, and eager expectation. Many of us are likely doing our Christmas shopping, we're looking ahead to giving gifts to one another, to eating, to spending time with family. I just think this is such a beautiful time of year. It really is my favorite time of year. I have a hard time not going full Buddy the Elf sometimes during this time of year. But for this time, as a church, looking at the Advent season, we're going to be walking through the gospel according to St. Luke. The first two chapters leading up to the birth of Christ, Luke does such a beautiful job detailing the lead up to the birth. You know, Matthew really just kind of kicks off with... The genealogy and the birth of Christ, it's kind of just boom, boom, he's right there. But Luke really takes some time and examines the buildup. And so as we are studying the advent of our Savior, I thought it would be great to look through Luke. So maybe just a little bit of background. Luke was not one of the apostles. Oftentimes when people will try and list the apostles, they'll go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They always start with that. And I go, well, you got two right. Mark and Luke were not apostles, but they did know the apostles. They traveled with the apostles. Specifically, Luke traveled with the apostle Paul. He was with the apostle Paul up until the very end. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul details how everyone seems to have abandoned him. This is the last letter that Paul writes. He writes it to his disciple Timothy, to his son in the faith. And he details, you know, he says, Demas has left him for the love of the world, and he's deserted him. And the Cretans had gone to Galatia, and Titus had left him to go to Dalmatia. He says, Luke alone is with me. So Luke is this faithful friend who stuck with Paul to the end, to Paul's execution by Nero. He was a friend of the apostles. Luke was also a faithful follower of Christ. He loved the Lord. He loved the saints. Interestingly enough, we know from the scriptures and from history that Luke was a doctor. That he was the blessed doctor, as Paul called him, the blessed physician. He was also a historian. He was a world traveler. So some, because of this, have referred to Luke as the Indiana Jones of the first century, which I think is, that's a pretty killer title if you want to go for a title. But he wrote this gospel in the book of Acts. There are two volumes set. They're both written to a man named Theophilus, and we'll see that as we open up this text. But Luke was also a historian. He is incredibly detailed. He says that he interviewed eyewitnesses to lay these things out. And so Luke penned probably the greatest historical account on record. So this morning, we're going to open in prayer, and then we're going to dive into this account, this very detailed account leading up to the birth of Christ. So let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this wonderful day. God, we thank you for giving us voice to sing praise to you. We thank you for this time of year where we set aside time to celebrate the glory of the fact that you came to save us from our sins. This time where we sing special music, where we read passages to remind us of these truths. I ask that you would just work in our hearts as a, <clears throat> as a church to help make us grateful and thankful. Or make us thankful for all that you've done. 
And we echo, thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving us. And Lord, specifically this morning, I ask that you would speak to us through your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in order to get to the birth of Christ by Christmas morning, we've got a lot of text to handle. So we're going to handle this text in three distinct acts. There's three movements to this passage. In Act 1, we see Luke give an introduction. He gives his introduction and his reason for writing this account. It's verses 1 through 4. In Act 2, we see the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist. In verses 5 through 25, that's what we see. And finally, in Act 3, we see the foretelling of the birth of Jesus our Lord. So rather than, you know, the stereotypical Baptist sermon in three points, this is a Baptist sermon in three acts. So hopefully that works. So with this in mind, I would ask, would you please stand with me for the reading of Act 1? Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 says this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Behold the word of God. You may be seated. This is a very unique opening to a gospel. It reads more like an opening to an epistle. That's because Luke is writing this as a letter to a man named Theophilus. So let's look at what Luke is saying. He opens by saying that many people have uh, have undertaken to compile narratives of the life of Christ. Now, I think all of us immediately would jump to the fact that Luke is probably talking about the other gospel writers. We know for certain that Matthew and Mark were written by this time, and probably, especially to someone who is familiar, who is friendly with the apostles, he had likely seen these accounts. They were immediately widely distributed. And Luke knew both of these men. Luke knew both Matthew and Mark. And so it's pretty obvious that he's referring to these accounts. But it's also entirely likely that Luke is referring to the fact that Jesus was an incredibly influential person. Many people wrote about the life of Christ. We even have some of these other accounts. There are Roman historical accounts where the Roman soldiers are writing in amongst each other, some of the leaders in the Roman army. And they're writing, trying to ask, what do we do about these Christians? What do we do about this Jesus? Well, who was Jesus? Well, he was some mystic out in the desert who performed many miracles. He was crucified. He rose from the dead. So interesting, even some of the Roman historical accounts refer to Christ rising from the dead. There were also Jewish historians very early on who began to write about the rise of Christianity. And so Luke mentions that there were many people who set out to detail what happened. And Luke makes mention of the fact that there were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. So many have set out to write these things, but Luke specifically calls attention to the fact that there were many eyewitnesses to what happened and ministers of the word. Luke is here saying that he got his account from the eyewitnesses. He did not compile this based off of hearsay. He compiled this By interviewing the eyewitnesses. Luke himself was not an eyewitness. But he sat down with those who saw this happen. And the fascinating thing is Luke is here giving an answer to the question. Why should we pay attention to what he wrote? Right? Anyone who has done any serious writing knows that when you write, you have to answer the question, why should you care what I wrote? Well, Luke is here answering that question by saying that he interviewed the eyewitnesses. And if there is question of his work, you too could go talk to the eyewitnesses. Think of being a contemporary of Luke. It's similar to what Paul says when he details the resurrection. He says Jesus appeared to Peter and to the apostles and to 500 others, most of whom are still alive. It's this account to say, don't believe me, go ask them. Luke... Assuming Zechariah was still alive, we don't know, but Luke likely sat down with Zechariah. Or if Zechariah had passed, he probably sat down with those who knew him. Luke, with the details that are given in this, likely sat down with Mary, the mother of Jesus, who we knew he knew. According to the book of Acts, 
We knew that Mary was with the apostles, as was Luke. So he likely sat down with her and heard her regale him with stories of how she treasured these things in her heart. But Luke also speaks of his own interest in this. He says that he closely followed all these things. This is not some slight interest or hobby for this author. He gave up everything. He went and lived with the disciples. He went and stayed with the Apostle Paul in that hollowed out cistern, that final prison Paul was in. He was with him. He gave up everything. Luke is not some fly-by-night writer. He is a detailed and interested party. And he says, it's so interesting, that he set out to write an orderly account. And that's exactly what follows. As we study these first two chapters, I, I beg you, I implore you to pay close attention to the details in this account. There are so many little details that could have only come from those who were there to see it. And Luke succeeded in writing a detailed and orderly account, but why did he write it? Well, I think this is one of the most beautiful things. The reason Luke wrote this was to give certainty to his friend. Certainty for Theophilus. Theophilus means lover of God, or directly translated, God lover. Some have speculated that this, this means that Luke is not writing to one person, but to a broad audience of the lovers of God. However, I disagree with this because Theophilus is given a title, an ancient title in the ancient world. He is called most excellent. This is something that you would call a ruler. You know, you would refer to a governor as most excellent. This is what Paul calls, uh, I'm blanking on which ruler it is, but there's one ruler in which Paul calls him this exact same title. It is a specific ancient world title given to individual people of high station. So Luke is writing to his friend, possibly his patron, maybe even his owner. We don't know. Many physicians at that time were enslaved by wealthy people. But Luke is writing to his friend, and he sets out to put it all in order, and he wants to give Theophilus certainty. That word certainty is Beautiful. You could also translate it. It could go one of two ways. You could either translate it as security or certainty. Luke wants his brother in the faith to be secure and certain in his faith. That is such a noble desire. I pray we all can gain certainty and security in our faith as well. But why is this important? Why is, why is it so important to study this book, to see why Luke wrote this? Well, we see here on full display the reliability of the account of the gospel. This story is not made up. I mean, think of what it means for Luke to say that he's writing an eyewitness account in an orderly manner. Anyone who has done any serious writing knows that if you record things accurately, you can be fact-checked. I mentioned this earlier, but... Luke is really opening the door for criticism. He's saying to anyone who receives this gospel, go, go talk to Mary, go talk to John, go talk to Peter, check my work. And to me, this gives me great confidence. Likely one of the greatest historians of all time set out to write the truth. Let me say with confidence that no work of history has ever been put to more criticism than the scriptures. And here... This historical account still stands strong, proven true over 2,000 years later. Not a blemish on its record. Every word in this book is true, and that is a beautiful fact. And that ought to give us confidence in this. We ought to have confidence in the gospel. We can be sure and we can know from this record that what we confess has been the constant confession of the church from the beginning. We believe what Luke is here laying down. And we know that this has always been the confession of the church. And I think that should give us joy and confidence. So let's, let's dive in. Let's dive into the meat of this account. So look with me at what Luke labored so hard under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write. Would you stand with me once more and let's read together Act 2, Luke 1, 5 through 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, 
And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he must be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service had ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among the people. Behold the word of God. You may be seated. There's a lot here. Clearly, this is a long passage. So let's, let's briefly look at what happens in this passage. One thing that is interesting to note is Zechariah and Elizabeth are noted as righteous people. This all takes place in the reign of Herod, and we really don't have time to get into who, who Herod was. But notice that Luke is tying this to a historical record. He's giving the time frame. Anyone in that day would know when Herod reigned, and the historians could easily go and check when that was. So during the reign of Herod, we're introduced to a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. They are righteous people. Now, this does not mean that they never sinned, but it means that they were true believers. They were truly faithful to God. They were righteous before God. But even so, they were barren and they had no children. And worse yet, they were old. They were past the days when it was possible to have kids. And to me, this instantly brings to mind the story of Abraham and Sarah. Righteous people, old beyond the age of having children. But Luke carries on and, and he says that Zechariah is chosen to offer incense before the Lord. And this was an incredible honor. There was an incredibly large number of priests who served in the temple. One commentary I read said that there was over 400 priests that would serve just in the incense. So what this means is they would cast lots and they would try to determine who was allowed to go in and serve. And more often than not, this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You got one shot to be the priest who would go in and offer the incense as a sacrifice to God. And this meant it was a huge honor. It was a massive honor to be the one who is selected. And Zechariah is old at this point. And likely this is his first time ever being chosen. And clearly he will die before he's ever chosen again. And he's, I, I really can't express how much of an honor it was to the priests to be chosen. See, see this was a time when being asked to volunteer in the church was uh, considered to be exciting. Well, for such a day as to be revived. But Zechariah is chosen, and he goes in according to the law, and he goes and he goes to offer incense at the table of incense. Now, normally, this was a short process. You'd go in. I mean, we got our candles here for Advent. Picture you would go in, you'd light the incense, it would burn, you'd leave. Really quick process. This is not something where you would linger. And Zechariah goes in, and he is delayed. The angel Gabriel appears to him. 
Again, the details jump off the page to me. Where was Gabriel standing? On the right side of the altar of incense. This is one of those details that only makes sense in an eyewitness account. I mean, you can almost hear it, right? Let's picture, we don't know if Zechariah lived to when Luke was there, but let's picture Zechariah having a conversation with Luke or with someone else detailing this story. You can hear it. Luke says, so tell me about Gabriel. And Zechariah responds, I, I went in, you know, according to the custom. I, I, I walk in, I go to make my offering, and he just appeared to me. What do you mean he appeared to you? I mean, one minute, he, uh, one minute I was alone, and the next minute, there he is, standing on the right side of the altar. He was just standing there? Yeah, on the right side of the altar. He's just standing right there. It's this detail that's just, it only makes sense if, if, if it's true. And picture the importance of what happens here. I can get caught up in the details sometimes a little too much, but think of the importance of Gabriel appearing. God had been totally silent for 400 years. Malachi, our Old Testament reading this, this morning that we walked through, that was the final prophecy that God had given. Malachi was the last of the prophets. And he prophesied that God would send a messenger right before the day of the Lord. And then Malachi dies and nothing. No angels, no prophets, no word. God is silent. One generation fades into another. The Israelites are conquered and enslaved again and still no word. But the faithful, like Zechariah, like Elizabeth, still trust the promise. 100 years turns into two, into three, and finally to 400 years. And people are getting anxious. Well, side note, I think if God's silent for 400 years, it's probably understandable to be a little anxious. Hey, I'm going to send somebody to you and then 400 years of silence. Then one day, Zechariah, a righteous man, a faithful priest, walks into the temple to make the one offering he will ever offer in his entire life before God, and at long last, an angel appears to him. Gabriel appears to him standing on the right side of the, of the altar. And Zechariah is afraid. Of course he's afraid. So what is the message? It's been 400 years. So whatever is said must be of utmost importance, right? Well, Gabriel foretells the birth of Zechariah's son. Now, if we are great fools, we may think this is a poor message to give after 400 years. But I do not believe we are great fools. And the message of Gabriel, combined with the predicament of Zechariah and Elizabeth, combined with the prophecy in Malachi, should instantly trip our minds. We should remember things in Scripture. There's those threads in Scripture that we latch onto, and we should instantly remember how in Genesis 18, 14, when God is speaking to Abraham and Sarah, he says this, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Likewise, the angel sent from God's presence says Elizabeth will bear a son. And he says that their prayers have been heard. What comforting words. Your prayers have been heard. And Elizabeth will bear a son, but this is no ordinary son. Remember those threads, those threads in Scripture. John the Baptist is the prophesied forerunner to the Messiah. Listen again to what Gabriel says in verses 13 through 17. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and make ready for the Lord a people prepared." This is reminiscent of, what, reminiscent of what is said about many of the prophets. So clearly, John, the son of Zechariah, will be a prophet. And this is wonderful news. After 400 years, at long last, a prophet will come to the people of Israel. But there's more here. And Zechariah, the faithful priest, would have instantly recognized this. Listen again to our small section here of our Old Testament reading. 
the very last prophecy from the Lord before 400 years of silence. Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. John is that coming Elijah. But more importantly is that phrase, the day of the Lord. Just before the day of the Lord, this would happen. This is the coming of the Messiah. John is the one who will herald the Messiah. Here are just three verses that will hopefully give a little perspective on this. Malachi 4, 5 again. Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Elijah is coming. And then instantly we ask the question, the same question that we see recorded in the New Testament. But wait, is John Elijah? Well, Jesus said he was. Matthew eleven fourteen. Jesus says to his disciples, and if you are willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. Finally, who is it that, that Elijah, John the Baptist, is heralding? Well, in the previous chapter of Malachi, this is answered. Listen to this. I love this passage. Behold, I send my messenger, referring to the coming Elijah, and he will prepare the way before me. This is God speaking. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Who is coming? The Lord. So who is it that John will herald? God himself. Christ, God in human flesh, is coming to his people. Amen and amen. This is cause for rejoicing. But Zechariah doubts, and Gabriel strikes him dumb. And we might think this is a little harsh, right? But we must recognize that God views a lack of faith in a harsh light. Zechariah doubts God's word. And Gabriel says that he will not speak until all happens. He will not speak. And this is where the people come into play. I love this detail that's recorded. The people are getting nervous outside. Everybody's praying, they're waiting, because you, you could see the smoke of incense coming up. It's supposed to represent their prayers, so the people are all gathered outside, they're praying, and they're waiting. Because when the smoke of the incense comes out of the temple, they know that their prayers are going up to God. And they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they start to go, this isn't a long process, where's Zechariah? What happened to him? And eventually... He comes stumbling out. And there's probably some relief, right? Oh, okay, good. Where's the smoke? Then they start asking Zechariah questions. Hey, what took you so long? And he can't talk. And he's motioning to them and trying to do some form of sign language to get them to understand. And they understand that he has seen a vision. Luke records that they get it. They go, something happened. He saw a vision from God. And picture the disappointment of the people. God has at last spoke after 400 years. There's a word from God to the righteous man, Zechariah. What did he say? Silence. He can't tell them. So Zechariah goes home, unable to tell anyone what God has promised. And the passage closes by confirming that all happens as prophesied. Elizabeth conceives a child in her old age to the glory of God. Man, there's a lot here. If I can just, I just want to emphasize two things. Before we move to Act 3, I just want to emphasize two things. First, barrenness is not due to sin. I want to emphasize this. In the ancient world, and if we aren't careful, even today, couples who struggle to conceive children can be viewed as having some kind of sin that keeps them from having children. If we aren't careful, we can think that way. But this passage is clear. Zechariah and Elizabeth are righteous people. But she's barren. I want to make this very clear because women who can't have, who cannot conceive children, oftentimes, after having spoken with them, counseled them, often will take it on themselves. I did something wrong. This is my fault. 
There's that lie that creeps in. But scripture is clear. That is not true. I cannot promise that faithfulness to God will lead to miraculously having kids if you're barren. But if you know someone who cannot have kids, I, I implore you, encourage them from this passage. It is not due to sin that they can't have kids. It's not. God is not cursing them. We live in a broken and fallen world, and we all face brokenness in various ways. And that is a burden that is difficult to carry. But the second thing I want to emphasize in light of this, long-delayed prayers, regardless of what they're about, long-delayed prayers can still be answered. I mean, picture the situation. Zechariah and Elizabeth are old. When was the last time they prayed to have a child? When did they give up? They knew they were beyond the time where they could conceive. But long Prayers prayed long ago may still be answered. Now, I can't promise that. As your pastor, I, I would love to stand up here and say all your prayers will eventually be answered. And someday, yes, in Christ, yes and amen, when we are in heaven, we will see the answer to all our prayers. However, I cannot promise that here on earth your prayers will always bring results. But I can tell you definitively, I can echo what the angel Gabriel says, your prayers have been heard. If you are struggling with unanswered prayers, know God hears your prayers. And someday you may see an answer. So do not despair. But I do want to give this word of application. I think there's one thing we can apply to our lives from this act. And that is to desire the salvation of your children. There's one verse, especially in the midst of all of Caspian's health problems, that has just been one of the greatest comforts to me. It says of John the Baptist, you know, uh, in verse 15, that you will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, we're not promised that with our children, but I think it speaks of a desire that all of us should have for our kids. Apparently, God can save even from the womb. I don't know how that works. I don't know how to justify that, but God can save even from the womb. That has been my consistent prayer for Caspian, for my unborn child now. I pray this daily, that God would never let them know a day outside of the covenant. And then that we would raise them in the hope and trust of Christ. David also says in the Psalms that he knew the Lord from his mother's breast. I think we as parents, those of us who are parents, ought to desire the salvation of our children and our grandchildren from birth and even from before birth. But let's move on. We're running low on time. So... Let's read the third act of this text, verses 26 through 38. Would you stand with me again for the reading of God's word? Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and, his king, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Behold the word of God. You may be seated. 
It's what happens in this passage. Gabriel, apparently six months after appearing to Zechariah, goes and is sent. Remember, Gabriel says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Gabriel is sent from God to Nazareth, to the Virgin Mary, who is betrothed to Joseph. He's sent to her, and he says something very interesting. He says, Mary is favored of the Lord, and that the Lord is with her. What a way to be greeted, right? To have an angel from the presence of God show up and just say, Oh, greetings, oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. And we notice something extremely interesting. The next verse, it says, But she was greatly troubled. That makes sense, right? Everyone who has, in all the scripture who has ever encountered an angel has been troubled. They've been terrified. But notice what it says. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this would be. Mary is troubled by the greeting. Man, that stands, that stands out to me because every single time an angel appears to anyone in scripture, they fall flat on their face in horror. Angels are apparently so terrifying that people will pass out. Think of the resurrection of Christ when the angel appears to these trained soldiers at the tomb and they faint. But the angel who appears to Mary frightens her by the greeting. Now, Luke is very meticulous in his phrasing, and it is probably true. I imagine Mary was probably frightened by the angel, too. But what stands out, likely when he interviewed her, what is noted by Mary is that she was more terrified by the greeting than she was by the angel. What does it mean that such a being would greet me as the favored one of God? To me, I think that speaks to the heart of Mary. This wonderful woman of God. She says, what could this mean? And the angel says, he says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And then he foretells of the conception and the birth of Christ. Listen to what he says again in verses 30 through 33. He says, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called son of the most high. Interesting, the name Jesus, side note, really quick, means the Lord saves. Yahweh saves. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua. Yahweh saves. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is directly tied to many Old Testament prophecies, but specifically in this moment, this beautiful moment in Scripture, we see the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Mary will conceive and bear a son, and this son will be the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. And Gabriel gives this wonderful list of what Jesus will be and do. Jesus will be great. This might seem obvious, but it has to be noticed. Je Jesus will be great. Now, all mothers want to hear that about their sons, right? All mothers want to hear that their sons will grow up to be great men. But Mary heard this even before the conception of her son, that he would be great he will be called Son of the Most High. Jesus is the Son of God. He is of the same substance as the Father. Jesus will be given the throne of his father David by God. Think of this. He is the Son of God, but he's also the Son of David. He is truly God and he is truly man. He is human in his flesh of the line of David. And more than this, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. When your days are fulfilled and you will lie down, God talking to David, with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And David rejoices because God took the throne away from Saul and gave it to him. And he says, who am I 
Who am I that God would make a promise that my seed will rule forever? And Jesus is the fulfillment of this. And he will reign over Israel forever. Jesus' rule in his father David's throne will never end. He is forever the king of Israel. But more than this, Gabriel uses more expansive language. And we see that Jesus will reign over an endless kingdom. Jesus is king over all. You all know one of my favorite quotes. Abraham Kuyper says, There is not one square inch in all of creation over which Jesus does not declare mine. And this is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is also the fulfillment of Daniel 7, 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's the most popular name Christ uses for himself, the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Gabriel is telling Mary, your son will be that. Obviously, she had some questions after hearing that. She asked, how could this be since she's a virgin? She's never known a man. How can she bear a son? I think that's a pretty obvious question. And we must notice there's a difference between what Zechariah did and what Mary did. Zechariah doubted. Mary tried to clarify. She goes, how can this be? I want to point out on that note, I want to just step aside for just a moment. God is harsh on doubt, but don't ever feel afraid to bring your questions to God. We are free to ask him questions. Side note. But she asks, how will this be? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon her and she will conceive a child. This is vital. Jesus is not born by man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Our ancient fathers in the church knew how important this was. Sin is passed through the human nature, but Christ was conceived supernaturally. He is without sin. He is the spotless lamb, the one who can be sacrificed for us. This is why the Nicene Creed, one of the creeds we confess as a church, says this. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten and not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation, notice this, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. Incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. That is exactly what Gabriel is saying. The Holy Spirit will come upon her. It is not through a natural process that he will be born, but supernaturally God will conceive a child within her. And then as proof of this, the angel speaks of Elizabeth's pregnancy. He says, and behold, your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age. Wouldn't you love to be recorded as being old in the Bible? In your old age. She is in the sixth month hmm, with her who is called barren. And verse 37, notice that. Why? For nothing will be impossible with God. Again, direct callback to the words of God to Abraham. Nothing is impossible with God. Amen. We must not miss this. This passage closes. Hmm with one of the most beautiful declarations of faith in Scripture. <clears throat> Notice what Mary says. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That declaration puts me in awe. This young girl was just informed of the most shocking news that a human being could ever hear. 
She just heard that she would be the mother of God the Son. The Savior of all mankind would come from her womb. And her response is, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be as you've said. The faith of this woman baffles me. Obviously, she should not be worshipped. She is not without sin. She is not to be prayed to. We don't venerate Mary. To do so is sin, but I fear that often we Protestants can take the opposite extreme. We see the failing and the sin in the Roman treatment of Mary to worship her and bow down to her as a co-redemptrix. And we take that pendulum and we swing it to the opposite side and we completely ignore how amazing the faith of this woman was. I say this with genuine sincerity. I don't believe there is a more godly woman recorded of in Scripture than Mary, the mother of Christ. So let's just take a moment. Look, look at who she is. She is a wonderful woman of God. She is to be called blessed. As Elizabeth will say of her in the coming chapter, or in the same chapter, excuse me, that all generations will call her blessed. I echo that. This woman is blessed. The faith that she has to be greeted by Gabriel who sits in the presence of God and to be called the favored one of God. And her faith to simply accept the role that God had given her with dignity and grace speaks of the best of what a godly woman is. She then gives birth to our Lord. She raises him. Think about it. She taught Christ how to walk. She changed his diaper. She fed him from her body. I am baffled by her. This is the woman who nurtured our Lord. And the constant refrain in scripture is she had a quiet demeanor. She would constantly be recorded as pondering these things in her heart. She'd see these miraculous events happen. And she'd just tuck it away in her heart to ponder it. Now she is not sinless. As we will see when we study the Magnificat, she refers to herself as needing the salvation of the Lord. And we know the book of Acts speaks of Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters coming to faith and being pillars in the church. And that's beautiful. We reject the notion that she was sinless. She was a sinner. And even at one dark time recorded in scripture, she rebuked Christ. But this does not take away from the fact that she is a pillar and an example of godliness. Women, I encourage all of you, study her. She is an excellent picture of godliness. She is one of the clearest pictures of what a godly and righteous woman is. She ought to be looked up to. But more importantly, Gabriel here gives a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. And we can't close this before we see this. Jesus is the promised Messiah. All through scripture, God has promised a Messiah who would come and save his people from their sins. And here at last, the Messiah will come. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. No one else can forgive sins, only him. We see Gabriel details that he is the Son of God. He is the eternal Son of God. We have to recognize that in the Jewish context, to refer to someone as the son of someone else was to say they were completely equal. They were on the same level. That phrase was used to say you were equal with one another. So Gabriel is here saying that Jesus will be equal with the Father, that he is truly God. He is the son of David. He is truly man. He's come from above, the son of God. Yet in his flesh, he is the son of David, bearing a human nature just like ours. He is the king of Israel. He is the eternal king on David's throne. He rules over Israel. And as Paul details, the church is the true Israel. This means that Christ reigns forever as our king. He is king of the church. This is why I fly a flag every Sunday that says Jesus is king. But more than this, he is king over all forever. Jesus is not just the king over the church. He is not just king in these four walls. He is king over all. He is king over eternity. Every nation is to bow to Christ. The government sits on his shoulders. Every ruler must bow to this king. And here, I think the application is clear. We are to worship Christ, especially in this time of year. We are to worship Christ as the promised king who reigns forever. 
Christ is reigning right now. He is seated at the right hand of the Father on the throne of the universe. So I call every one of you who are here and I call all people outside of here to bow to Christ as the very little authority that God has given me as a preacher of the word. I declare the truth to all. Every knee must bow to Christ. Submit to Christ as king. Worship him as God. He is Lord over all. He has come and he is coming again. And when he comes, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. This passage in three acts speaks, it exists to speak of the divine nature of the coming of our Lord. He was heralded by angels. He was preceded by Elijah. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He is the eternal Son of God, the prophesied Son of David, forever reigning King over all. He is our Lord, our Savior, our God, and our King. Hail the Savior who came and is coming again. During this time of Advent where we ponder the meaning of the coming of Christ as a babe in a manger, and we long for the coming of Christ in his throne and glory. I implore you to ponder this. Hide it in your hearts. This week, recall this. Bring it to mind that Jesus is the promised one who rules over all. He came as he was prophesied. He rules and reigns now. The question is, will you submit to him as king? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for who you are, for coming, for reigning, for ruling. God, we bow to you as Lord, as God, as King over all. Truly God and truly man, the prophesied King will sit on David's throne forever, the ruler over all for all time. Lord, this week, this week of Advent, may we hide it in our hearts. May we bring it to mind that you came as you were prophesied, that you are coming again, and that you are reigning forever and ever. Lord, may we submit to you. May we call all people everywhere, especially in this time, in this time where so many have rejected what this season is truly about, a celebration of your coming. May we please, Lord, as your people, as those who bow to you, may we call them to the truth. May we remind those in our lives that we give gifts to one another out of gratefulness for the gift that you gave us. May we remind one another that this is not a vain celebration, but this is a true, rich, deep-hearted celebration that Christ has come. Lord, may we sing sacred, special songs about your coming. May we read the words of your scriptures and may we rejoice at the fact that you have come, that we are no longer in our sins because you came and that you are coming again. So Lord, we thank you for who you are and all you have done. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.